Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. I've got a series of questions that I want to ask you that comes out in and uh, Jesus really helps us to understand these questions and the answers to them. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? We live in an age where, uh, frankly, uh, even even churches and people within churches uh, don't answer that accurately. They don't know how to answer it. They haven't been taught properly. What, what must a person do to be saved? What will it cost to follow King Jesus? Can a person be deceived into believing they're saved when in fact they're not? Well, that's certainly true. Jesus talked about that in the the book of Matthew already. Can Jesus be Savior but not Lord? Well, that's a controversial issue. and has been for many, many years now. It's not unusual to hear Christians talk about Jesus as as Lord, but too many erring Christians believe it's it's actually possible to have Jesus as Savior without Him being Lord of their life. And they even go so far as to say that Lordship salvation, as, as they call it, is a false gospel. There's been books written on that subject. In fact, there's a good one in the church library I recommend you read if you want to know more about that whole Lordship salvation controversy. But the Bible clearly says there's only one Lord Jesus Christ, and anyone who believes in Savior must also believe in the Lord. He's Savior and Lord. If He's not Lord, then He cannot be Savior. Today we're going to interrupt kind of Matthew's uh, progression through uh, Matthew 8 and 9. He's been looking at various miracles of Jesus. And this is kind of uh, coming in between a, a set of miracles here. We want to see what, what does Jesus think about discipleship? By the way, it's not, it's, it's not totally unrelated. I think there is a, there is a point. And, 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 and we need to understand at this point in Matthew's gospel, we read a story in which Jesus actually seems to have turned two would-be disciples away. As Jesus evaluated these two men, uh, the first person was too quick to promise. He said, I will follow you wherever you go. He He was too quick to promise. The second was actually too slow to perform. The one's too quick, the other's too slow. Jesus told the first that following him actually meant being homeless. He told the second that loyalty to him came before loyalty even to the closest members of one's family. And as far as we know, both of them turned away and never continued to follow Christ. Why did Matthew include this story in the middle of a section where Matthew's documenting Jesus' authority over sickness and disease and demons and even nature? Well, Matthew wants to show that the same Jesus who has this great authority over sickness, disease, demons, and nature is the same one who has authority over the lives of his disciples, even would-be disciples. So Jesus determines what following Him will involve, not us. Too often we 
we try to put our terms in the, into the discipleship of being a follower of Christ. My friends, if you're going to follow Jesus, it must be on His terms, not on your terms. He is Lord. He is King. That's the point Matthew's trying to show here. So we're going to look at each one of these, these two men, these, these would-be followers of Jesus. We'll see what they said. We'll see what the Lord uh, actually says back to them. How did he respond to these two would-be followers? And then we'll wrap it up with some, some application. What, is, what does this glorious truth mean for us today? Number one, in following Jesus, there is the danger of a careless confession. The first would-be follower made a careless confession. Look at verse 19, Matthew 8, chapter 8, verse 19. Actually, let's, let's start reading uh, verse 18 here. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he, order, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the lake. Verse 19 says, And the scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Notice the the first would-be follower here, the Bible describes him as a scribe. That's very significant. You need to understand something about scribes of Jesus' day. Scribes were very respected amongst the Jews. They were the, uh, they were, they were amongst the elite. They were the, the scholars of that day. They were kind of amongst, kind of like the theologians of that day. They were the guys who had the, the, the DR period in front of their name, so to speak. You know, the, the, the doctors of theology or the doctors of ministry or whatever, okay? Very respected amongst the Jews. They loved the Bible or the, the Old Testament scriptures and, had great knowledge of it. They were the interpreters of the law. They were also the ones who were often coming after Jesus too, weren't they? The Pharisees and the scribes. Challenging Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. So here we have a man, he's a leader in the religious establishment of his day. He's kind of kind of bucking the system a little bit here by, by coming to Jesus and and saying, notice what he says to Jesus. He calls him teacher. Well, that's interesting. Because this, this particular scribe, we asked the question here, what did the scribe actually confess? Well, number one, he confessed his respect for Jesus by calling him teacher. Teacher was a term of great respect. Kind of the, the equivalent of calling him rabbi. Here, here's a man who is a teacher of the Old Testament, and he's coming to Jesus and calling him teacher. He had a great desire to learn from the words and the works of the master teacher. I'm sure he was, he was impressed by Jesus' teaching. He, he may have even been there as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Apparently he was. And he's, he's seen some of these things that Jesus has been doing. He's impressed by this. And he wants to see more. He wants to learn more. So he confessed his respect for Jesus. Number two, he was very enthusiastic about Jesus' ministry. And we know this because look what he says. He says there, I will follow you wherever you go. (laughs) That's someone who's showing some enthusiasm about Jesus' ministry. The word follow 
there in your Bible, involves both, both personal commitment and cost. That is certainly involved in the definition of the word. It's implied in the word. Uh, he, but, but sadly, he doesn't seem to understand this particular truth. He, he's not thinking personal commitment and cost. In fact, his remark has overtones of pride in it. It's almost like he said this, Hey, Jesus, this is your lucky day. I have decided to be your disciple. No, it wasn't Jesus' lucky day. <laughs> Do you hear the pride in that? That's kind of what he said. So we see he was eager to follow Christ. He was determined to follow Christ. He's saying, hey, I'll go wherever you go. And he's willing to follow Christ anywhere. But what did the Lord reveal? Well, the Lord knows his heart. (laughs) The Lord knows something that we're not seeing based on his simple words here. So we've got to look at the Lord's words to understand a little bit about this would-be follower. And the Lord reveals his heart in verse 20. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So number one, the Lord revealed the scribe's superficial, half-hearted commitment. The man's confession was based on the miracles that Jesus had performed. It wasn't based on the message that Jesus had proclaimed in Matthew 5-7. through that's not, that's not what he's talking about. And number two, the Lord revealed the scribe's self-reliant faith. This man's self-reliance. Notice he says there, I will follow. I will. Do you see the I problem there? I will do this. I'm going to do this for you. It's your lucky day, Jesus. There's no prayer for God's grace. So my friend, we need to realize Jesus does not want shallow commitment from us. He didn't want shallow commitment from this guy. Jesus demands that the one who truly follows him actually counts the cost and makes a radical commitment to him. And it is, my friends, a radical commitment to be a follower of King Jesus. It's not easy. It's hard. And you need to count the cost. Jesus tells us to count the cost. To understand this is a radical commitment in other portions of Scripture. Uh, For example, on your screen here, it says uh, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to endeavor or encounter another king in war, will not sit down first, and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he 
has cannot be my disciple. So notice, being a follower of Christ, number one, Jesus exhorts us to count the cost. Just as if you're going to build something or if you're going to war, we must count the cost. You don't go and build your house, if you've ever done that, without considering, hey, do I actually have enough money to do this? Can, or if you don't have enough money, can I get the credit in order to build a house? Because you don't want to you know, put the foundation down and start putting the walls up and say, oh, great. Uh, I don't have any more money. You know, you, then you end up looking like a fool, right? Jesus says, count the cost. But notice there's a radical commitment here as well. Your love for Jesus Christ should be so great, it, it appears as if you hate your family, which of course you shouldn't. Jesus, of course, backed up the Old Testament law, which says we are to love other people, we're to honor our mother and fathers. Jesus was not saying, hey, don't obey the Old Testament. But what he's saying is your love for him should be greater than your natural love for your family. That's the point. Well, let's look at the second would-be follower. We learn here that in following Jesus, there is the danger of delayed devotion. There is the danger of delayed devotion. God desires devotion. He demands it. He, he, he should have it. But sometimes we delay, just as this man does here. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. There is a companion passage to this, which I encourage you to go back and read maybe even later today, which actually gives a third individual, which we, we won't talk about today. Today we're just going to look at the, uh, these two individuals. This man is proposing something to Jesus. What did the man propose? He says, Lord. He, notice he calls him Lord. That's a good start. But he has delayed devotion in his comment here because he says, let me first go and bury my father. It's like, it's like coming to Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, I will serve you. I will be your follower, your disciple. I will go wherever you go. You can teach me. But I, you know, I, I, I got something else that's more important to do. You just have to wait for me. You'll have to work on my timetable. That's essentially what he was telling Jesus. Now, sometimes we don't understand sometimes what Jesus is saying. Some people criticize Jesus as, as, as if he's coming across here as really harsh and unloving. So let me try to help you out in what Jesus is saying here. Here's what one commentator said that helps us to understand a little bit about uh, the, the Middle Eastern culture. Okay, Here's what the commentator says. Quote, The man's asking for permission to bury his father did not mean that his father was already dead. The phrase was a common Near Eastern figure of speech that referred to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. Obviously, such a comment could involve a long period of time, 30 or 40 years or more, if the father was relatively young. End quote. 
So he, he's basically telling Jesus, work on my timetable. I have other more important things to do first. So what the man was proposing was to wait until a convenient time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus shocks us with his answer. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. And so if you don't understand the culture of that time, you weren't, you're not going to understand what Jesus is saying here. But what, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, there's all kinds of opinions on this. You read commentaries or stuff online, you get all sorts of opinions. Here's, here's I think, the, the two best options that I've found. Here's what one commentator said, quote, Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, end quote. Another commentator said this, quote, it means even the greatest obligations dare not deter one from following Jesus, end quote. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm Lord, I'm King, put me first, even above your family. And by the way, there's a little, there, there's a little bit of self-serving going on there with his, his priorities. Because he's after the family inheritance. He wants his portion of the family inheritance. If I follow Jesus, there's the chance he's not going to get the family inheritance. So do you see, see how he's serving himself there? It's a bit of self-worship going on. So what does the Lord require of followers, of disciples? Well, in verse 22, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. So number one, we see here the Lord requires immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. The word follow there in the Greek language is a command. It's it's in the imperative. It's not an option. Jesus is commanding this man, and he knows it. He's commanding him to follow me and do it now because we, we know that because it's also in the present tense. Present tense means you, you do it now and you keep doing it. It's not something you do in the future. Jesus didn't use the future tense here. You know, when you get around to it, you know, follow me. No, Jesus is saying, follow me now and you continue to do it your whole life. Well, we, again, we see this idea throughout Scripture. For example, in Luke 6.46, Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? What's the obvious answer? The obvious answer is you don't call Jesus Lord and then disobey Him. <laughs> if you disobey Him, He's not Lord, is He? Not at least in your life. So, number one, the Lord requires immediate obedience. Number two, the Lord requires complete loyalty. Complete loyalty. Complete allegiance, if you will. It's, it's, not, it's not being a traitor. It's not being on, on Jesus' side one day, and then, then you're on your own side the next day. No, complete loyalty throughout your whole life, and it never wavers. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 here, verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Folks, do you see that loyalty to Christ comes before even the, the, the deepest relationships of our life, which of course is our family? Your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, or even your mother-in-law or father-in-law or some other in-law. Right? Jesus is saying, love for Him is so great, it appears like you hate the other relationships in your life. Ultimate loyalty to Him is first. You know what? Sometimes you're going to have to choose Jesus over your father. Sometimes you're going to have to choose Jesus over your mother. Sometimes you'll have to choose Jesus over your children or your spouse. Our love for Jesus is first. And if you have to choose between the two, Jesus must always be first. You must be loyal to Him first. And sometimes our families don't like that, do they? You know, sometimes we, you know, the family decides, you know, particularly unsaved family members will schedule things on a Sunday and you say, no, God comes first in my life. I'm going to church. Sorry. Love to be there. God comes first. I'm going to church. I'm worshiping God today. I'll be there after. Sometimes our family members hate that. They don't understand. What? You're choosing God over me? How dare you? Yes, I am choosing God over you. Or sometimes we have to make other sorts of decisions like that and unsafe family members don't understand, do they? But never, never put family members before Jesus. Must always be loyal to Him. Complete loyalty. So the Lord requires immediate obedience. The Lord requires complete loyalty. And number three, the Lord demands a lifelong commitment. The, the, the commitment is for your whole life. It's, it's not when you get around to it. Hey, you know, when I retire or, you know, in this, in this guy's case, when I get my family inheritance and I've buried my father and my mother, then I'll be a follower and disciple of Christ. No. It should happen at the moment of salvation throughout your whole life. It's not when you, when you get your theological degree or you get so much money or, you know, after you're done working and you've retired. No, it's, it's your whole life you're committed to Christ. That's what Jesus demands. Let me give you some scripture here. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, let no one, sorry, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So who, who's getting the commitment here? God does, right? Above anything else, you can't serve another master. There's only one master, and that's God. Jesus also says in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So you do that, and Jesus says there in Matthew 6, three times, commands us, don't worry. Don't worry. Hey, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm a good God. Always good. I'm going to look after your needs. But you must put me first. I come first. My kingdom 
and righteousness comes first. And it's a lifelong commitment. There's nothing in Scripture that says, you know, you know, you can put it off or, hey, you know, you do your 10 years time period and then you get the rest of your life off. No. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that. It's, it's present tense, all your life. So what is a disciple anyway? Well, we need to understand what this is because we've seen this term here at least once. The simplest definition of a disciple is student or one who learns. So somebody who, who goes to school, you could say is a disciple. If you're learning, if you're a student, then in, in, in one way at least you're a disciple. But it really means more than that, certainly in, in the context that Jesus is talking about here. A disciple is someone who follows a master. It is someone whose life is shaped by the teaching of the master. It is someone who becomes like the master in every way, adopting the master's values, adopting the master's attitudes, adopting the master's actions and even the principles of the master teacher himself. That's what a disciple is. In short, what I'm saying is a disciple is someone or, or it's someone who is molded and shaped into the master's image. Romans 8 calls it being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what a disciple is. To help us understand this, I, I found a very helpful illustration from Chuck Swindoll. So let me let me read this to you. It's from one of his books. He says this. Let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that's growing rapidly. I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until a new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family and move to Europe for six to eight months. And I leave you in charge of the busy organization. I tell you that I will write you regularly and give you directions and instructions. I leave, and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations for you. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office, and I am stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room. She is doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite music station. I look around and notice the rubbish bins are overflowing, the carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I asked about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there! Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. I say, what in the world is going on? He says, what do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, sure, yes, I got every one of the letters. 
As a matter of fact, we've had a letter study every Friday since you left. We've even divided the personnel into small groups to discuss many of the things you wrote. Some of the things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, you got my letters. You studied them and meditated on them, discussed and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Do? We didn't do anything about them. And that ends the story. I hope you get the point. What is the moral of the story anyway? Well, here's what I think the moral of the story is. Jesus is calling us out of the crowd, just as He's he's done with these people here. He's calling us into discipleship. But in order to become a disciple, you, you have to do something. It's not enough to just hear Jesus' word. Or to see Jesus' miracles. You have to do something. We must cross over with Jesus to the other side. We must step out of the crowd. Get into the boat with Jesus. We must commit ourselves to Him. Travel where He travels. Do what He does. And live with Him as the center of our lives. And we do it for the rest of our life. Day after day after day. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. A disciple not enough to, I hope you get the point, it's not enough to just read the Bible or have a Friday night Bible study and say, wow, that was interesting, and then do nothing with it. It's not enough to memorize an entire book of the Bible. You must do something with the Bible. Jesus is saying a follower of Him is one who does something, one who obeys Him. Well, Jesus' teaching challenges us with four shocking truths. I want to give you four shocking truths. This is where we'll end today. Number one, the demands of Christ's kingdom are radical. The demands of Christ's kingdom are radical. We we tend to think of most jobs, and even the jobs we're doing at the moment, as something that we can take on and then later drop them if if you know if we don't like the job or we we think we can get better pay or benefits somewhere else that's how we tend to think of our jobs but when jesus presented the demands of his kingdom here he explained them as callings that demanded the most radical commitment from his followers this wasn't something you say hey i'm signing up for and when you know the the weather out on the sea starts getting rough, you say, uh, that wasn't in the job description, Jesus. I'm quitting. Right? And that's about, that's going to happen in our next passage, by the way. The disciples crossed over the Sea of Galilee and, and the weather gets rough. And they might be tempted to say, hey, you know, whoa, uh, this wasn't a part of the deal. Right? Especially if you believe the lie of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Right? Become a Christian. And you'll be healthy, wealthy, wise, and you'll be rich and never have any problems. If you believe that kind of a lie, then, then you're, you're, <laughs> you're going to give up pretty quickly, most likely. So following Jesus was never to be a part-time occupation. It was, it was a radical commitment to Him, a lifelong commitment. 
through thick and thin. So the demands of Christ's kingdom are radical. Number two, the authority of Jesus Christ is unique, utterly unique. There's no one like Jesus Christ on this earth. Jesus was speaking and acting here with more than just human authority. In fact, many people recognized that, didn't they? They said, this, this man speaks like no other man speaks. And, and it's interesting that Jesus actually, in verse 20, calls himself the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite description of himself. You look it up in a concordance, you'll, you'll, you'll notice he uses that, that phrase, Son of Man, often. It's his favorite description of him. And I believe this is the first time it's used in the book of Matthew, but you'll see this many more times to come. In fact, I'm trying to remember, I think, 20 to 30 times Matthew uses it. So he called himself the Son of Man. And that comes with, with, uh, with, with great intrigue, great power. He's showing his humanity and his deity all wrapped up in one person. And if Jesus is God, then the demands of his kingdom become even more radical than we've imagined. If he is God, it is not extreme at all to follow him wherever he wants you to go, do whatever he wants you to do, and even give your life for him if he wishes you so to do. If he's God, nothing he could possibly demand is outrageous. When the king demands you go here, you do this, it's not outrageous. If he's God, we owe him total obedience and total self-surrender. However, however, since Jesus is God, that makes our total surrender all right. Okay, Because our, our natural tendency is to think, whoa, 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 wait a minute, this is getting real radical here. Whoa, hey man, this is going too far. Man, you know, if I, if, I de- if I declare Jesus is Lord, He's King, and I'm going to do whatever He wants me to do, well, you, you'll probably have the response I had as a teenager. Well, that means God's going to send me to Africa. Sorry for those of you from Africa, but that was one place I didn't want to go. I thought, whoa, that's really radical commitment. God's going to send me to Africa. Whoa. I mean, think about that. I mean, if the King wants you to go somewhere... He's going to give you the desire. It's going to be the place where you're going to want to be. Instead, God sent me to Solomon Islands of all places. <laughs> and you know what? I don't like the weather, sure, but, but I love the people. I, lo- I love going and ministering to those people. God's given me a heart for that sort of a thing. And as a teenager, I thought, man, that's the last thing in my mind I wanted to do. Commit to Jesus Christ with my whole life? That's radical commitment. He's going to make me do something I'm going to hate. No, he won't. It's all right. It's all right. Total surrender is all right. He's not a capricious God who has no concern for us. <laughs> Too many think of, of, of God as like he's playing some chess game, and he's, he has no relationship with the chess pieces. You know, he just moves you around, knocks you off, or wins the game however he wants to do. No, he's not that kind of a capricious God. Don't think of them like the Greeks and the Romans thought. They, their, their gods were capricious, constantly fighting each other, doing things to suit their own ends, seemed no care for the people of the earth. God's given us life. He's given us families, homes. He's given us a reasonable portion of this world's goods. And you know what? 
He wants us to enjoy the world's goods. That's okay. As long as they don't come before Him. Right? You start loving the world more than Him, then you've got a serious problem. But God expects you to live in a home. Expects you to have some money in the bank. And other things like that, okay? To have families. He expects that of you. He expects you to enjoy them. These things are good precisely because God made them and they're they're, they're gifts from a good God. All good things come from God. So if God requires us to give up one or more of these things, it's because the demand is good in that particular decision and situation. Okay? God's not going to... He's not a mean God who's, who's thinking, you know... I don't know. Too, too many people have a bad, bad theology about God, don't they? And they think God's out to get them. In fact, I, I'm in communication with even one of my own cousins who sadly grew up much of his life thinking that way about God. Bad theology about God. God wasn't out to get him. God's out to bless him and, and minister to him. So we see the authority of Jesus Christ is unique. And number three... True discipleship has priorities. True discipleship has priorities. Jesus may never ask you to break with your family, okay? So don't, don't freak out, all right? Um, it, it, most likely, he's not going to do to you what he's done to me. Most likely, he's not going to say, you know, go halfway around the world and leave your family. Now, I know some of you have done that sort of thing. Most of the time, Jesus isn't going to ask you to do that. He's not going to ask you to sell all you have and give to the poor in order to follow Him, most likely. In fact, this may not be required of us at all. But you must be willing to obey in these or any other areas if Jesus does ask you to do that, like He did to these people in the Bible. And so when we do have things and possessions and money that are good gifts from God, we must hold on to those things lightly. They must never take deep root in our lives. You know, you ever tried to take a tree out that has an incredibly deep root system? Lots of roots going deep? Hard to move the tree, isn't it? Instead, we need to be, we need to be something has, is lightly holding onto the things of this earth that can easily be moved. So we must get our priorities straight. That's one of the points I'm trying to make here. Get our priorities straight. Following Jesus must be the most important thing in our lives. Yes, even more important than our lives. If He demands of our life for His service, even even giving up of our life in death, then what a glorious thing we can do. If that's how He wants us to serve Him, then so be it. We should have the kind of attitude of saying, however God wants me to serve Him, I'm willing to do that. We must not do anything to subtract from that high commitment instead what are we to do we need to do everything in our in our power our strength to to continue with that commitment to build that commitment to instead of breaking down the barriers breaking down the things that that strengthen that commitment well there's a fourth shocking truth we see here that we need to understand is this that this hedonistic world is dangerous this hedonistic world is dangerous. Remember, we have three enemies. We have Satan, 
your own indwelling sin, and this world. The Bible says those are our three enemies. In this world, and I don't mean the, the physical, I don't mean the physical, okay? You understand the, the, the Greek word is cosmos, referring particularly to the beliefs and the philosophies of this world's system, the cosmological system we live in. That's the great danger. And Christ's statement about putting him before family responsibilities reveals the shocking truth about the dangers of this world. We must say to ourselves, if I can be kept from Christ by the normal and proper love that I should have for my parents, my spouse, my children, my siblings, then how dangerous must the other snares of this world be? Do you get the point? I hope you get the point. Yes, we should love our family, of course. But that can be a distraction from the greatest love, what is of most importance. And Jesus is saying, if, if, if the normal family love can distract you from what is most important, beware of the other things out there. So this hedonistic world's dangerous. I love what John Charles Ryle, who was a pastor, what he wrote. He wisely wrote this. Here's what he says, quote, It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of His professing servants. So much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to keep in touch with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of people are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so after running well and bidding fair for heaven, they turn aside and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. They begin with Abraham and Moses and end with Demas and Lot's wife. End quote. You might ask the question, as I was thinking about his wonderful quote there from his book, Practical Religion, you might ask the question, well then, how can we resist the world's temptation? It's a strong temptation, isn't it? We're surrounded by the world, right? You go to work and you live in the world. Your neighborhood, you're surrounded by it. You look at the television, you see the world. You read a newspaper, you see the world. You look at a magazine or books. Go to the library. It's, it's everywhere, right? You, you can't get away from it. It's just everywhere. So how can you resist the world's temptation? Well, it's, it's the same with all temptations. It's the same with all sin. You defeat sin with superior pleasure. You defeat it with superior pleasure. If you don't know what that superior pleasure is, you go to God's Word, find out what that superior pleasure is. Jesus is saying it's Him. He is the superior pleasure. There's nothing greater than Him. So, I love what John Piper says. Jesus needs to be Savior, Lord, and treasure. He needs to be all three. So, my friend, be bold in confessing Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. One day, the Bible says, every knee is going to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says. And so, here's the reality, okay? You want to know reality? 
you're going to bow. Every one of us, every person on planet earth who's ever lived, who is living and ever will live, will bow the knee to King Jesus. Either they're going to do it in grateful adoration, or they're going to do it in bitter defeat. But they're going to bow the knee. You're going to bow the knee. And so if you're going to bow in adoration, here, here's, the, here's what I want you to understand. The time is now. Jesus is saying, follow me now. Not sometime in the future. Not when you get your family inheritance or whatever. Don't let the demand for absolute loyalty or even the difficulties of following Jesus keep you back. Right? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him. That was a hard thing to do. So what do we do? We run to Jesus. We cast ourselves before Jesus. We worship Him as God, Savior, and Lord. And then we get on with the task of living Him for Him, I should say. Living for Him with, with our whole life. Every moment of our life. May God give us the grace to do that.